Hello, my name is Javier Robé, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going pretty well. Uh, we're, I'm just getting used to this now. I, I, I don't have to wear pants when I record these raps with you anymore. It's awesome. Thank you for the mental image. I now am envisioning you without pants. It's awesome. It's, uh, yeah, like the frog in the slowly increasing temperature pot. I'm just used to doing host raps remotely on Zoom. We're now. in a balmy 104 now. So it's pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. And the slow temperature raised to being cooked and boiled yeah, alive. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, we'll never notice. We're both alive and neither of us appear to have COVID yet. So at the very least, we're asymptomatic in that in that sweet two weeks before everything goes to hell. So oh, let's God. enjoy it and do some host wraps. Host wraps it is. We've got a great show today. Uh, who's on the show? It is Javier Grobet. He is an amazing DP. He certainly is. Most excitedly for us, because we have been talking about it on the show forever, he was one of the DPs on the new Watchmen series on HBO. But he has shot... We- a lot of stuff. He shot a lot of stuff. But if you haven't seen Watchmen, go do that. Go watch the HBO reboot. It shouldn't even be called a reboot. It's as, it's like sort of set in the same world of Watchmen, but not trying to remake that wonderful movie. Yeah. So, uh, or the comic book or anything else. It's its own thing, and it's great. Yeah, and he, he talks a great deal about that. And I, I thought one of the more interesting things, too, is he kind of talks about like... <laughs> great filmmakers that we've that we all know specifically alfonso Cuarón, when he was a film student he talks about him and it's, it's like it doesn't even occur to me like i sort of feel like the earth just birthed alfonso Cuarón as a as a complete finished filmmaker and it's hard to imagine him uh being a dweeb like In me at, film at, at, at film school you know going to uh you know the equipment checkout room and you know getting a low old dp kit so that he could shoot whatever garbage uh you do in film school but I, and if he was shooting garbage, it would be the best garbage that anyone ever shot because he's Alfonso <laughs> Cuarón and he's a master. And and in my opinion, has been since the first time it ever occurred to me he existed. I think it was A Little Princess was the first movie of his that I'd seen. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, classic. Yeah. Hey, uh, what are we talking about in Close Focus today? I, I know it's something that we you and I talk about a lot, but how, how would you best describe it? Would you call it uh, trash TV? Trash, trash TV. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would call it yeah. trash TV, and it's uh, the barbarians have been at the gates for a long time. Trash TV has been infiltrating all of our TV viewing, and in fact, I feel like uh, you know one of the big moments of trash TV was probably in in 2000 or 2001 when there was that fear that ended up being unfounded of a SAG strike, but it meant that a bunch of reality shows like American Idol and Survivor and stuff like the first wave of network level reality shows kind of got through there were already uh garbagey shows at the time like anna nicole smith had a crap ass reality show on uh e and i think the osbournes had already 
been on MTV. And then just the floodgates opened and we were stuck with reality TV. Yes, indeed. In fact, actually, there's a really interesting article in The Guardian the online uh, publication with mm-hmm. uh, Werner Herzogs, who says, I'm fascinated by trash TV. Uh, the poet must not avert his eyes, which I think is uh, which I think is a nice quote. Uh, you know, uh, actor, director. I love, uh, you know, I love Werner yeah. Herzog to death. Actually, I don't know. I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I have masterclass and he did a masterclass. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I watched it. And wow, I just want to watch Werner Herzog talk about anything. He's brilliant and interesting. But I have to say that a masterclass in filmmaking from him, uh, thing is, his success is not exactly a repeatable kind of success. Like you kind of have to be him to do it. And and so uh, some of his advice is great and wonderful. And some of it is like, what planet would that apply on? And I mean that in the best way, because I mean, I I sort of feel like Werner Herzog is able to somehow embody simultaneously the profound and the absurd and, and, and channels that for us. And that's what he's always done. Yes, uh, he is a an interesting sage for our times. He definitely pops up in all kinds of interesting places and makes fascinating documentaries. And there, there's something about a, a Werner Herzog experience, I don't really know how else to tell it, that has uh, a certain amount of his own self-reflexive, I'd say, camp built into the whole thing sure. as well, too. Yeah, yeah he, he knows exactly what he embodies. And yeah, he really does kind of see, see it through that lens. So in that vein, what would you say when you think crap TV, what do you think of? Okay, well, uh, I've got a friend who is now a retired uh, reality television producer, and she is much happier now. She told me a story about the project that drove her from the industry, and it was a Fox TV special called Who's Your Daddy? Do you remember Who's Your Daddy? Uh, this was a train wreck of a television show, which... Uh, I think that's uh, just called ado- the Maury Povich show, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I think that's fair, but really the adoption right advocates were really, really pissed off about this show in particular. uh, It was about a young woman who was adopted trying to identify her biological father from among eight men, seven of whom are imposters seeking to convince her that they are the real thing. And it's like interestingly bad. (laughs) Yes, it's so bad. So seven actors and the birth father. And if she's correct, she'll win $132,000. But if she picks the counterfeit dad, that man gets the money. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. So it's, it's like just... to tell the truth, but it's like real hardcore consequences. Yeah. And and also it's just like it just feels like so just like sleazy and amoral. And it's like, you know. God, it's just it's bad. It's just it's so bad. But when I think of trash television, I think of these shows that uh, they don't have a conscience. They really don't. It's like something bad could happen, did happen. And boy, we're just going to we're just going to keep watching and enjoying every second of it. And I feel Buck, like Buck Wild was one of those. Didn't Buck Wild get canceled after like somebody died on it or was horribly injured? I don't remember which one Buck Wild was. What was Buck Wild? It was like Jersey Shore, but in like Arkansas or something or oh, God. Alabama. Okay, gotcha. So it's like they just they just cast a bunch of people who the rest of the country could sneer at and pretended that they were all friends and off doing things that they weren't really doing together and in contrived situations. And it was like trying to repeat the Jersey Shore thing. I, I tried to watch Jersey Shore exactly one time because I'm like, this is zeitgeist. Do people keep talking about the situation and Snooki and all this stuff? And I watched like three minutes of it. And I'm like, I, I can't take this. Like these people are pretending to be themselves. It's so weird. And then they're thrust into circumstances that they would never be in 
for our entertainment and then they're pretending to react the way that they would react if that really happened to them it's like a documentary about nothing Uh, did i ever pitch you on like my hypothetical reality dating show starring uh gary Busey and do people uh, have to date gary Busey? they spin a wheel they spin a wheel to either date gary Busey, gilbert godfrey or john lovitz and I was going to call it Lovitz, Godfrey, or Busey, or something. Something you, you weren't going to call thing. it Lovitz or Levitz. No, but that, that's a good one. My feeling yeah. is that like you would have like one tiny slot on this wheel that said like Brad Pitt, and you'd spin the wheel, and then like the rest of the wheel, the other like ninety nine percent of it is divided into thirds, either Gary Busey, John Lovitz, or Gilbert Godfrey, because all of them are like really really big personalities and. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, someone else decided Gary Busey would be great for more reality television. And right now he has a new show out called Gary Busey Pet Judge. Mm. And it is literally animal court for people who have disputes over their animals with a loved one in which Gary Busey sits in judgment. Wow. Can I tell I can I pitch you a, a trash my trash TV idea that I actually took sure. out? I took this idea out and I pitched it. And I was like, this is my retirement plan. And now everyone in our audience <laughs> can hear it. I may have already told you about it. But it was called Smash Court. And the idea was that you would get like a WWE wrestler to be the judge. And then you'd get real Jerry Springer type people who despise one another to come on. And and it was like the People's Court or Judge Joe Brown or Judge Judy where they argue their cases. But, But instead of ruling who wins or who loses, they would rule how they had to fight. To decide, ooh, ooh, ooh. to decide okay, how it so won. Like, so the courtroom walls tin would, cans. The courtroom or. walls would explode away, and you'd find yourself in kind of like a Thunderdome kind of a thing. And um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to. I actually got some pretty good responses from this. You know, if anyone likes this idea, call me. But um, <laughs> anyone in the sound of my voice, I'll be happy to sell this idea. But um, I, I, I even had a logo. Kurt, our wow. friend, our friend Kurt Allen helped me put together a logo for it. It looked really cool. <laughs> it was really a, good. It was a skull and crossbones <laughs> with two crossed gavels. Oh, I and love it. It was it was awesome. <laughs> Smash court. And uh, the idea, too, was like you could appeal your case if you lost by wrestling or by fighting the judge. And so and at the at the time, China was a big wrestler and, and we had pitched her. She's no longer with us, unfortunately, now. But you could find somebody like that. But to me, this is what was hilarious is like uh, my pitch was sort of like you. You'd have people, you know, you put them in giant weird sumo suits or whatever. You'd have some kind of weird fight but it was like something where they really couldn't hurt each other and mm. one of the places i took it to was spike tv and oh ex- yeah it seems like it's right up their alley totally they, they, the, they had a lot of trash the TV. exec at spike tv told me it's not violent enough <laughs> uh what what they said was like our audiences treasure authenticity like like an ex- <laughs> they want to see people get hurt yeah and i was like ah, we can give them a baseball bat with a nail through it if you'll take the liability i don't care <laughs> I think I actually said that in the meeting, Um, you know, because like I'd come up with like a series of battles where people could be really, really violent and have cameras on their body. So it's like right in their eyes and you see the hate and the the pounding. You just see how much they they hate the person that they're trying to fight for whatever, you know, ran over their fence or whatever trivial garbage people go to these people's court kind of shows for but like you know i didn't want anyone to like break their arm or something like you know to me it was like it's more fun to just watch them battle it out and really psych them up and get them to hate each other on camera 
to me it was gotcha. like like the world needed more hate on camera but anyway it was the it was a head-to-head version of the tv show wipeout essentially where they <laughs> actually got one-on-one combat and yeah 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 or yeah but, i mean like to me it became american gladiator as, mm. as soon as the court part of it was over and uh, i still think it would be a brilliant show and i still think i could retire on the funds from smash court but uh, anyway, but yeah, I mean, but now, now you've put it out into the world and if somebody rips it off, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're it's, it's really, uh, you know, I, I, I had my shot. Um, well, but, but, you know, but, like, but here it is. This is, this is the time when I think some, some trash TV is going to get greenlit. Some well, stuff's gonna I, go also, I saw that there's a TV show that's like, you know, the kids game of like the floor is lava they, they've, mm. they've made a reality show out of that. And I'm like, I watched a trailer wow. for it. And I'm like, is this, is this, is, is the onion making television shows? that are satirical <laughs> and I, I i hope i'm not pissing off anyone who works on these shows but uh somebody actually said to me like i bet there's a lot of shows that are just in the vault that got like a pilot order or something and in in the era of covid when we can't produce anything it's like they just need stuff that is finished that they can you know put out in the world so you know maybe we're seeing more of that kind of stuff i watched the circle on netflix and mm. uh instantly was was filled with hate um, because uh, yeah. it, it's trying to emulate what the, the phenomenon of social media in terms of like the winner is the person who can be the most popular using this fake social media thing that they've cooked up for the show. And mm. and it kind of just makes you realize how vacuous social media truly can be at its heart. I, I couldn't watch it. I, I really couldn't. So I watched an episode of it sort of for research. I, I, I was like, I can, it's sort of the same reason I started watching Jersey shore, although I could not take Jersey shore. And at the time that I was pitching smash court around, there was talk of taking it to MTV. And at the time MTV was doing shows like next and mm. the whole, the whole thing on MTV at that time was like as low budget as possible, as low production value as possible you know high concept low cost that that was kind of the what they were going for and i don't want to sound like a snotty person but i was like we didn't end up pitching it to mtv i think that i kind of said i don't want to take it there if this is, if we have to dumb it down any dumber than it already is because to me it was it started <laughs> it as a dumb, dumb idea it's a dumb idea that I, it's one of those dumb ideas that i think would be a lot of fun but you know <laughs> if we're going to take the fun part out of it and just like make just make it dumb make assholes yeah. fight each other you know like it just it just they've already got that show it's called jackass hey oh yeah well and, and i mean actually you know there, there's a certain genius to jackass though i mean like there's an intelligence to jackass sure you know and and you kind of it's also the it's also the dumb part and it really just ends up being bad pranks and people fighting each other that's true that's true i know one of the people who used to produce jackass so but also like spike jones created jackass i thought that was sure cool. and and i will say that at, at its heart it's it's a there's a certain amount of brilliance there that is trash tv that i could totally get behind but especially early jackass i definitely feel like there was a de-evolution that happened as it went went well, along you know what I, when you bring that up to me the difference between some of the trash tv that i'm talking that we're talking about here and something like jackass is who's in on the joke and mm. i feel like if the cast is in on the joke so in that in the case of that it's like johnny knoxville and bam and all those people that that he worked with they're all coming up with the joke like they're doing kind of a kind of sketch comedy that just involves stunts and violence and and poop jokes right physicality sure yeah that's what they're going for but i feel like when we're watching uh i'm gonna say honey boo boo and it's like we're supposed to be sitting in judgment of these people 
you know, the show yeah. exists so that I'm not in on the joke. Yeah, I can feel better than myself because Mama June is is a crazy person. I have a harder time getting behind that, and I think that that's why I had a hard time specifically with Jersey Shore. And I, I know Jersey Shore is like super old news, but. Um, There's a generation of our listeners right now who have no idea what Jersey Shore is. Yeah, but but it, 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 but yeah. but a show like that where I sort of feel like obviously the cast is being paid well to kind of pretend to be themselves, but they're sort of being exploited. And there's a high degree of inauthenticity to this stuff. Like there, I, I won't say what the show was, but I know somebody who worked at a production company. I stopped by and they had a reality show that was about a celebrity and, and their family. And there was a bunch of construction going on at the production company office. And I said, what's going on? And they, and they said, oh, they're making this person's office. And I was like, this person's a crazy successful celebrity. Surely they have an office that you can just shoot in, right? And they looked at me like, you naive little man. Like, <laughs> like everything about the show is fake. It's all scripted. None of it's real. None of the situations. And, and you know, you kind of wonder like, okay, uh, you know, just to pull one out of the air. Gene Simmons, who, you know, of Kiss, who had his own reality show for a long time. Or Flava Flav. Like, these people have weird-ass lives that I think the average person could not relate to. In fact, Ozzy Osbourne, the original, I think, first season of the Osbournes was sort of a documentary about what was going on at Ozzy Osbourne's house. Because regular humans like you and I don't understand the day-to-day of being a, a weird megastar. But then I think they, they run out of stuff. And so, actually, in the case of the Gene Simmons show, I heard that 100% of it was, was staged. Like, they, they wrote all of it. You you may or may not know this about me, but I shot some reality television. Oh, I, I do. I know this well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I used to shoot that TV show Blind Date uh, on occasion. And I can tell you that that show was like 90% real. I mean, those people really were those people. And there was a little bit of like, oh, we missed you walking into this nightclub. Can you go outside and do it again? There was that kind of like reenactment stuff. But then I worked on another show, another sort of dating show. And it was like 90% staged. Everything yeah. was staged about it. And and once, and this is going to sound like a super like stupid Hollywood story, but one day at lunch many years ago, this is probably 2012, 13, 14, somewhere in that range. I went to lunch and it was sort of a semi trendy place in Hollywood and in walked this reality television crew. And the producer was there talking to these two people who they were hanging out, having fun, but they came to this place to have a fight. The whole idea was they were going to come there, order lunch and get into a big blowout fight. And they shot it like three or four different times. And so it was like these people are not actually there's no real fight going on. These people are totally friends. It's a thing. It was about as as true to life as like professional wrestling. And everyone who just happened to be at this restaurant this day got their entertainment while with their meal of seeing these these reality people uh, pretend to have a fight in the middle of a restaurant. The real winners of, of reality television, by the way, to me, are actors because reality show stars want to be on the cover of magazines and want listicles written about them and want paparazzi following them around. And, you know, the uh, Brad Pitts of the world get the heat off of them a little bit. So, you know, there's <laughs> a slight silver lining. Anyway. So, hey, uh, let's get to the interview. All right. Here is Javier Grobe. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here in one of our uh, amazing uh, Zoom sessions, since we can't meet in person again, uh, with the amazing cinematographer Javier Grobe. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. All of us are giant fans of Watchmen, and I'm a huge fan of a lot of your other work as well. But Watchmen, uh, in my opinion, is probably one of the best shows of the last several years, you know, just a standout. And I say that as a 
as a fan of the original comic book and the original movie. And, and as I told you off mic before we started, we did have Larry Fong on who shot the original Watchmen movie. So uh, so I'm very interested to hear kind of the perspectives on uh, all of these things kind of commenting on each other in, in an interesting way. We always kind of start with, uh, before we even get into your background, the, my, my big question, because really everything I'm asking you is is my fishing expedition to figure out how we give you a, a script with a bunch of words on it and you turn it into pictures. So when you read a script, what is it that you see most clearly before you talk to the director or whatever? Are you looking, at, and, and I've often reduced it to, is it more of a lighting thing or more of a composition thing? But honestly, like, what is it you see as you're reading a script? Um, I think the first time is, uh, I, I want to know what the script is about. What is mm. the story that we're telling? Even though having images in my mind of what I'm reading, I'm actually just trying to like go into the, to the bottom of it and see what the script is really talking about. And it's funny because you don't really, like it's, it's happened many times where I read it and I think there's things that I don't understand completely. But when I hear a reading with actors, it all comes to life. And then I, I get a lot, a lot of matter out of it, right? But um, yeah, the first thing is to, to see, to know what the script is about. What are we talking about? Uh, what is the feel of it? What is the emotion of it? And, and from then on, starting to create images according to it. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't start thinking about shots in the specific, or maybe there's situations where you do, but mostly it's just kind of like the first impact. What is this? What is this that we're telling? What is this story? What are we talking about? You know? Mm. But like when the images start coming to you, and it could be after you talk to the director or whatever, like what are the thoughts that are going through your head, I guess? What's formulating as you're thinking about how we're going to take the script? Like what are the first questions you ask yourself or ask the director? Like what are the things in general that you think are, uh, are, are the early stages of formulating your approach to the stuff you're going to shoot? Well, I guess mentally you make a breakdown of the script and you go scene by scene and see what every scene is asking for. There's sometimes... Mm -hmm. Just thinking about episode five on Watchmen where, you know, first of all, it starts in that street fair and the, the mirror, the fun house and, the, and then the camera flying from a close up away into Manhattan. So there's things that are like very clear on uh, what the script is demanding. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, how are we going to make this happen? What equipment do I need? Or what, how am I picturing this scene? For example, uh, when I first read it, I read it differently from what the director said. I, I thought it was like, why don't we come out of the phone house as if it was his POV? Yeah. And that POV starts flying towards Manhattan. And then you approach Manhattan as you're, as you're seeing it in your frame. That's the scene, the scene with the giant squid, right? Yes. But then the director is like, no, it's the other way around. We pull away from his face. And I'm like, oh. So it was like a complete 180. You know? <laughs> I, was, I was pushing into Manhattan. And she was pulling back into Manhattan. And then I understand it like, oh, okay. So that's a different point of view, but I kind of like it because then on the other direction, you would be seeing the, the squid right away. Yeah. On the version that we did, you can like pull away from him and you start coming into Manhattan and you start revealing bit by bit. So it made more sense, but my yeah. Well, also you start by seeing his reaction, and and then later get to see what he's reacting to. So it it's such a great build. As a fan of the comic book, that was one of the most amazing moments, by the way, because you know, uh, famously in the movie, they kind of changed the giant alien squid situation. It's really the only major change they made uh, between the comic book and the movie. Fans were not happy with that. I know. <laughs> I understand why they had to do it, man. Kind of condensing that that giant uh, comic book down. 
So let, let's go back a little bit and, and talk sort of about uh, how, how you came about. Like, how did, how, when was the first time that working in the camera department or being a cinematographer was a thing that really occurred to you as a thing you would want to pursue? Do you want to go way back, 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 back? Way back, back, <laughs> back, back. The okay. Earth cools. Uh, okay, so I grew up in a house where my mother is a still photographer. She's an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up with a dark room in my house and I started experimenting with photography ever since my early days. She went to England when I was 10 years old for a scholarship and then we met her there, my, me and my siblings, for another extra year. And while being there, for some reason, I, I got into the idea that I needed, that I wanted a super eight camera. So I had a few savings. Uh, I asked my dad to send me my money and I bought my super eight camera and I started making tiny films, you know, kind of like some of them based on my mom's ideas, what she was doing. <laughs> and then I was like animating them, you know. Oh, wow. Camera. So that was kind of like my first thing. And then from then on, it's like, for some reason, it's like, okay, I want to do movies. That's, that, that was so- like. You were just kind of like from the first moment, you know, from, from an early age, you know, how old would you say? You, 10, you 11, 11. Wow. So, so from that moment forward, making films was the, was your direction in life. Yeah. So yeah, I was making my little late super eight movies. I was doing animations. I was doing like tricks in camera that I wanted to, you know, just like experimenting and having mm. fun. Yeah. Then by the time we got back, my, my cousin, who also is a filmmaker, she's a, he's a director. We used to share uh, weekend houses, uh, his family and mine, in this town in south of Mexico City. And so we, every summer, we would like buy a bunch of film and we would write a story. We did three movies. You know, we write our stories and we, we shot them in, uh, with all my siblings and cousins and everybody. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was like the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So... And then, I don't know, from then it's like, you know, once, once you get the, um, the sting from the bee, then you can't <laughs> get away from it, you know? Then yeah. you get uh, stung by, by the film uh, bug and then you can't get rid of it. Yeah, and then from then on, you know, I did my schooling and everything. And um, at one point in my career, I kind of like doubted what I wanted to do. I had my dad who was an architect and my mother who was a photographer. And I was like going back and forth between the two of them. So I, I entered architecture school in a university for like a year or two. And then I said, no, this is not my thing. And uh, I, I, I dropped and I applied for the Mexican film school and I got in and, and that was it. And that was like, I prepared myself so much to get in that school. You know, it was one of those where <laughs> 300 applications for only 12 accepted. Uh, oh, so wow. it was hard. Yeah. You're literally, I think, the third uh, cinematographer we've had on who started out as an architect, though. That's interesting. Checo Varese and Carlos Gonzalez, uh, all three of you uh, started as architects. I, I, I wonder, like, if we were to do a general survey of all working cinematographers, how many of them have at least studied architecture? I don't think it's only three of us. I think there's more. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's such a thing about it because, you, you know, you're working with spaces and light in architecture which is what you do when you're lighting a scene so it, it yeah. goes hand in hand you know? no it, it totally makes sense and I, I remember like Checo was the, was the first cinematographer who we talked to who had done that and I, I remember being like oh yeah that's unusual and then as soon as he explained it exactly the way you just explained it it's like oh yeah it, it's it's extremely similar in a way in that you're yeah you're you're showing us spaces you know and uh, figuring out where where light goes in them and stuff it, it, it's uh, I don't know it's interesting we, sh- we should uh 
do a, a side panel one day of, of DPs who started in architecture. So uh, becoming a filmmaker, you know, looking at your at your credits and stuff like you worked in the camera department a lot and as a cinematographer a lot. So and you do have one directing credit that was a documentary. But I'm guessing that early on you you decided cinematography was the way to go as opposed to directing, which is I'm, I'm just curious what made you choose cinematography specifically. It was always the camera. That was my thing all the time, ever since those early days. That credit that I have as a director was our second year in school where we had to do a documentary and I did a documentary that I directed. Uh Um, And that's what it is. All the others are basically all cinematographer credits. And what what school did you go to again? I'm sorry. I went in Mexico City to CCC, which is Centro de Capacitación Cinematográfica. Mm -hmm. It's one of the two schools that are there. One is the one that I went to and the other one is uh, belongs to or is part of uh, UNAM, the Autonomous University, National University. That's cool. And I, I always ask people who went to film school, like, what is the pitch for going to film school? Because obviously today, if you're if you want to be a filmmaker, you can get a DSLR or even shoot on your phone. Like access to gear is not the reason to go to film school as it might have been when you went or when I went. But like, what did you get out of film school beyond that kind of stuff? Obviously, you know, working with somebody like Chivo is pretty amazing. But, uh, you know, were, were there other connections? Were there other were there amazing teachers? What were, you know, kind of the inspirations you drew from film school? Well, to be honest, I think the main thing is uh, creating community. Funny enough, like we just finished a, a cinematographic class literally a, an hour ago that uh, through the Mexican Society of Cinematographers we created. Uh, well, my friend Carlos created and he invited me to be part of it. Oh, wow. And, we, you know, we did these two weeks of uh, a day, a, a cinematographer a day, and it's been fantastic. And the one thing that I keep on that from that is the, the sense of, friendship and community with my, my the people that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess that film school means that, means that you, you're creating a community and a group of friends and a group of people that you're gonna be working with for the rest of your life. So it's not just the amazing teachers or the experiences of doing things one way or another. I mean, that you can learn on the set, being a camera assistant or, or, or getting your camera started shooting. I mean, everybody has a different way. But I think that, I would say that it's a sense of community and a sense of group. I think that as a generation, we were in Mexico back in those days, you know, we were like a very solid generation. We, we have a lot of successful filmmakers and cinematographers like Chivo, like Rodrigo Prieto, who is also from my school. From, yeah, not a I mean, we, we all grew together. We all grew together in the same schools, in the same ambience, in the same people, you know, so that's, that's the main thing. That's amazing. Well, and, and uh, also, obviously, like Guillermo del Toro and Iñárritu and Alfonso Cuarón, like such influential filmmakers worldwide uh, that came out of probably roughly that time or, or maybe a little bit before your time. Well, not exactly the same time. I mean, by the time I was in film school, uh, Cuarón was shooting his thesis in school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're all the same generation. I mean, uh, I remember back in those days, there was a moment, this is a known story where Chivo and Cuaron and uh, some other friends were kicked out of school because they were doing things differently from what the school was asking them. <laughs> and Paul Cuaron shot his first film in school in English, and that was like a big no-no in, in, the, in the film school. Uh-huh. like, no, you live in Mexico. This is not Hollywood. And it's like, whatever, no. So they, <laughs> they, they started doing things differently from what other generations had done before. And so that was not a very well accepted back in those days. I guess it makes sense. It's hard for me to imagine Alfonso Coron in film school because to me he's like, you know, the the best of the best. It's just hard to imagine him just like, you know, 
going into the gear checkout room and asking for a light kit. Just seems weird yeah. to me. One of my first experiences with him was on a movie with uh, Ariel Lombardi's uh, French movie directed mm-hmm. by her, this French actress. Omar Sharif was in that movie too, Whoa. in Mexico. Really? And, and Cuaron was the, the assistant director and I was a camera assistant of the third camera. Wow. He was, the cam- he was the assistant director to Ariel Lombal back in those wow. days. You can't imagine. <laughs> I, I, I just, I can't, <laughs> it's like imagining, you know, Orson Welles making toast. I'm sure he did. It's just hard, hard for me to imagine it. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. So um, when you get out of film school, what is your pursuit? Like I, I, I've seen, you know, like, again, looking at your IMDb, I see you have like uh, camera assistant credits, most notably for me on a Tony Scott movie called Revenge. And then uh, for the world, Total Recall, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. What was the bridge between film school and, and working on those kinds of movies? So when I finished school, I had a teacher, my, friend, my first uh, DP teacher who, mm-hmm. rest in peace, he's not longer here, oh. Santiago Navarrete. He, he taught me a lot and I worked with him as an assistant for many, many years. And he's the one who pushed me to get into the union. And back in those days, kind of like what happened here too, where the unions were completely closed uh, out for anybody new. Yeah, like the old timers were in control and didn't want any any new blood to come in. Uh, but in those days, that's those days where there was a bunch of American productions going down there, and they needed people to supply to for manpower and learning, knowing the language, knowing English, and, uh, and knowing the craft. I started being called to those to those jobs. Um, one of my first ones, I think my second one, uh, working like that was with my dear David Watkin, mm-hmm. who also he became a a very brief friend, but I, I got to spend some time with him in Bristol before he died. An amazing, big time, lo- bigger than life cinematographer. Uh, so I worked on that movie and that was a pleasure to do. So I kind of like started, you know, I got in the unit and I started working on these movies. That's when I did um, Revenge, uh, the Tony Scott movie, uh, who's no longer with us as well. Uh, yeah, I know. And, so uh, and that was a fun, fun, fun movie. I actually just did a movie, a project that I was uh, working on before the, before they sent us home for because of the virus. Mm-hmm. Where the script supervisor Julie, uh, when we met for this job, we were talking to each other, and it's like, "Do I know you?" And she's like, mm, <laughs> "I've been in Mexico," and it's like, "Yeah, so when? What project did you do? Uh, Revenge?" She's like, "Oh my God, Julie, it's me, Javier." Oh, like, wow, <laughs> from 1988. It was a really fun uh, encounter, and just talking about Tony Scott and how great it was to work with him. And then from then, yeah, then, then, we, then Total Recall came along. I originally interviewed and I wanted to be a focus puller, but they said, you know, it was just Vacano and Annette Heimlich. They said, well, Annette is the focus puller and just the cinematographer, he's operating. So we would hire you as a second assistant. I said, okay, uh, I took the job. And then a month later, just let Annette start operating. And so they moved me up to, to focus pulling. Oh, sweet. And he was really kind because just said, um, you know, start doing it. If we have any issues with you, we'll go back to the old configuration. But if you're doing fine, then we'll stay like this. And he's like, okay. So he gave me the chance. And that was like a, back in those days, 1989, an $80 million movie back then. It was like a huge It budget. was like one of the biggest movies of, of that year. I remember when it was coming out too. Yeah, it, it was I mean, huge. Like, 
was was it before I, I we're going to talk mostly about your own work as a cinematographer but like it's just hard to imagine the world of that kind of a movie from that time you know probably a lot of our listeners have seen total recall and h on you know cable or netflix or whatever at some point but like what was it like working on probably the highest budgeted movie of its time or one in you know it, it feels like it must have been like a, a city was temporarily set up those sets are huge all the effects are huge you're working with arnold schwarzenegger at the peak of his popularity you know what was all that like it was like like surreal to be honest uh, mm. first of all they took over churubusco studios in mexico city which is our only studio left and back in those days it was still intact because mm -hmm. years after they divided it and they they split it and they did other buildings in there but back in those days the studio was all completely intact and and the, the movie had every studio available and every space and every piece of uh every square foot of the studio was taken by the company and funny enough it was next to my film school so i could see my my fellow students <laughs> across is like hey i'm working over here um, <laughs> it was it was big what can i tell you i mean as big as like one day being in the set and then seeing grace jones coming in to say hi because she was invited but i don't i don't know schwarzenegger you know as her as his guest and it was like well hello <laughs> you know like <laughs> just surreal and you know it was incredible experience uh, those sets were huge were amazing and we would destroy every set you know the whole the, the whole movie is so violent, you know. So like you know, we would get to like the what was it a Hyatt or a Hilton Mars Hotel? Uh -huh. The set was incredible, huge, big, and then a week after we had destroyed it with explosions. So oh, that man. was kind of like you know the model for all the sets there. It was a big experience, yeah. And you know, I I ended up being the focus puller. Now that I think about it, I didn't even get a raise in my paycheck. Hey, that was bad, and I remember that just now. <laughs> you should call Paul Verhoeven and see if he can, uh, you know, hook you up now. That's rough. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was great. So I feel horribly remiss in that I haven't seen a lot of uh, the work that you did in Mexico in between those years. The first thing uh, where you came to my attention was Before Night Falls, which is uh, directed by Julian Schnabel, who's like, you know, just one of the most amazing visual directors. Now, how did how did that uh, come about? So I was uh, already here in the States. My ex-partner, Michael, uh, gave me the book to read. I was like, I need to read something. It's like, why don't you read this book? And he gave me the book to read before night falls. And I fell in love with it. And so and then at that time I was already here. And I, that time I learned that my friends in Mexico were prepping the movie with Julian Schnabel. And I was like, Oh my God, I need to get on this. So I, I talked to Matthias Ehrenberg, the producer. And he said like, here's Julian's, Julian's number. Uh, what do you call him? Um, I talked to Julian and I expressed my interest and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the movie started, in the beginning, he didn't hire me. In the beginning, it was a, a different cinematographer who's now a, fr a really good friend of mine, Mauricio Beristein. He started the movie, but I don't know what happened in, in there that they let Mauricio go. And then Julian called me one day and was like, we need you here right away. So oh, I wow. didn't prep the movie. I came in late. I embraced what Mauricio had planned for the movie, and I, you know, I went along with it. Um, so it was a weird way that I ended up doing that project, but I did. And it was, you know, it was such a great experience. I mean, Julian is, is a tour de force. I mean, his, his creativity and his visuals are mind blowing. 
I mean, seriously, like he's in a different league from pretty much every other filmmaker I can think of. Yeah. Uh, what was it? I mean, like, I really do feel like he's got a visual language all his own in, in every one of his movies. What was it like kind of applying your craft as you knew it to with somebody like that? Well, first of all, he he's an encyclopedia. He knows every movie and every movie is a reference for him. And he can he can reference a scene, specific scene on a specific movie directed by a specific director, you know, like- That's interesting because I always think of him as a, he's a painter, right? Like he's a, he's an artist. Yeah, he's a, he's a visual artist, he's a painter, yeah. but his movie knowledge, you'd be surprised. Uh -huh. He knows everything. All the movies that we had to see for, the, for, for Before Night Falls, all the references, Battles of Algier to um, yeah. Pichot, the Brazilian movie, to like all these references that we had to look at. And, you know, the whole experience of trying to help him out, planning scenes, uh, we would like set up a shot for Julian and we would plan this scene for him that according to what he wanted. He would come, he would see it and say like, okay, I've seen that already. I don't like it. Let's do it this way. Let's turn around. <laughs> like, Julian, but we just have everything planned. Yeah, yeah, I know, but let's do it this way. And so he was constantly changing the plan. So <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. But, you know, visually, I mean, those images, uh, I mean, I, I give full credit to him. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, his work is really amazing. So, and I feel like I just skipped a, a, a giant step. So what, what did bring you to America? What brought me to America? Yeah. Uh, love. Ah. <laughs> I had never, I never intended to come. I was uh, doing the post on a Mexican movie that we had John Sales as a co-producer in New York. And while doing the coloring and the, the final steps of that movie in New York, I met Michael, my partner, and we fell in love. And then, you know, and then from that, I came to live with him. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started my career with this. I, oh, wow. Uh, it was never planned. <laughs> So, uh, but, but like moving a career, like after you'd established yourself as a cinematographer in Mexico and then coming to the States, did you, I mean, did you come to LA? Is that where you? Yeah, to LA. Uh -huh. So when you came to LA, did you have to reestablish yourself out here? And how did, how did you go about doing that? It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. It was painful. Uh, you know, the first year, you know, to make a living, I had to go back and shoot commercials in Mexico, make a little mm -hmm. money and then come back here and all that. And then I started getting um, little offers, like I did this movie called Tortilla Soup, which we shot back in those days. Imagine, we couldn't afford HD, so we had to shoot it on uh, 720. Because really? it, was, it was too expensive. Imagine Whoa. those days. And that was back in, uh, what was that, 2000, maybe earlier? I, we did that, I think, right before um, Collateral. Remember that uh, yeah. movie? Uh, that's the first time they used the Sony, the 900 and the, um, the Viper. Yeah. yeah, they did the Sony and the Viper. Mm -hmm. And I actually used the Viper in one uh, pilot back in the days with uh, Alan Poole. And I really liked that camera. For, I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't very sensitive, but it was, it was a really beautiful camera, I think. It's so weird to think about like these cameras that we get all obsessed about. And then like, you know, 10 years later, if you talk about the Viper, nobody, you know, nobody's, I don't even know if Thompson Grass Valley still making a camera. I don't, I don't know anything about that now. I don't think so, but it was, I love that camera. I think the quality of it was very cinematic. Same. I'm sorry, I completely derailed you. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> so you were going back to Mexico, you were shooting commercials. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So eventually I got this movie, yeah, Tortilla Soup that we shot on 720p, Panasonic. Mm -hmm. And back in those days, CFI, the lab still existed. And I love those. I made really good friends in that lab, like Dan Wesselman that afterwards moved to Technicolor. Uh, Dana Ross, who moved her all around and is now 
one of our honorary uh, ASC members, who's a fantastic mm. guy. He was my, my color timer in those movies. So they did uh, the, the whole transfer. It was a re recorded transfer from video to film. So I remember it was like an optical recorder of our 720p to film to have a 35 millimeter negative. Yeah. And I think it took like, you know, the whole night to record or something. I, I remember seeing the machine. So that was the first kind of like serious job that I got here. And by that time, at that time, I was already applying for my green card. Uh, and I remember being on that movie when I got accepted. And so kind of like everything started moving along. But um, yeah, I would say the first three years were really, really hard, you know, getting your name out there and, and getting jobs done. So I think by the time I started do, uh, shooting uh, Deadwood for HBO, that was kind of like my, like a big thing I was very excited about. It was like, I felt like I was doing this Hollywood show and I was so happy about it. <laughs> you know, it amazing was, show. Yes. <laughs> it was a great experience. And I also met really fantastic people there. And so that's kind of, yeah, I, I would say like after the third year, things started to move along a little easier, but it was hard. I want to ask you also about uh, The Woodsman, not just because it's a it's an amazing and beautiful film and, and the cinematography, I think, is standout and, and amazing in that. But also that movie led to Watchmen, if I'm not mistaken, correct? It did because Nikki Cassell, the director of that movie, is who invited me to do Watchmen. Mm -hmm. Nikki and I, I also got to that project like at 5 to 12. Uh, Tammy Raker, even, she was going to shoot The Woodsman, and, but she was pregnant and she decided not to do it. So... I got the offer to do it. I flew into Philadelphia. I met Nikki and we started working. We, I think I had like two weeks of prep and then we started shooting. Wow. And it was just like a very collaborative. I mean, Nikki is such an incredible filmmaker. That was her first movie. We got along really well. I think we matched our visions very much. Uh, and I think we did something very, very cool. And so ever since we wanted to work again. So when the, the, the chance to do Watchmen, she invited me to work there and... Uh, and I was happy that it uh, that it happened. Well, that's cool, and that she brought you back to work on uh, Watchmen. So I always th I always feel like Deadwood is a much more recent uh, show than it was, but it was actually that same year, right? Was it two thousand four that the Woodsman came out, and also Deadwood premiered two thousand four, I believe. I did yes, I did the Woodsman, and from there I jumped on to the uh, Cave Dweller, a movie also with Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick. Oh wow! With Lisa Cholodenko directing, and that was like literally oh, right amazing. after. Yeah, and we shot that in uh, Toronto. And mm -hmm. then right after that, I came to LA, and that's when I did The Woodsman. So those three projects came in together, yes. That's pretty rapid fire. That's awesome. So uh, what brought you to uh, Deadwood? I guess it was just Greg Finberg, the, the producer. I think he saw my reel. Mm -hmm. and he. It's funny because they had sent me the pilot uh, when I was in Toronto shooting Cave Dweller. And I saw the pilot and I wasn't like crazy about it. So I kind of like said no. And then I came to LA after I finished that project, I came back and, and then I got a second phone call from Greg. He's like, would you like to meet? And I said like, okay, let's give it a try. So <laughs> then I went, <laughs> then I went and I did like four episodes, three, four episodes yeah. of the first season. I met him all and met Greg, who's a fantastic guy. And, you know, they embraced me. I got in and I, I started working. I, I mean, after I met him and I saw what they were doing, I was, I got excited, you know. But at first I wasn't like crazy about it for some reason. Now, what's the difference between shooting your own stuff and going into a TV series where you're sort of, you're having to recreate a, 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 or at least reference a look that was created by another cinematographer? Yeah, it's, it's hard. Uh, it's happened a lot. Like, in Deadwood, even in Watchmen, because 
I mean, Watchmen, I was there almost from the beginning. So in the beginning, I was a little intimidated because, you know, Greg's lighting uh, techniques are a bit different from mine. So I was trying to like emulate it. But then I said, okay, so I'm just going to do what I know what, what to mm -hmm. do, how I do things. I'm going to respect and I'm going to follow the guidelines that these guys have created in terms of, uh, you know, this comic book imagery that, uh, that was developed for the, for the project. So yeah, it's, it's, you come in and you, you embrace something uh, and then you make it yours. It's different when you create it from scratch, when it, when it becomes your own uh, experience, because then you have the chance to experiment and to come up with your own vision, you know? Um, so, well, let's go ahead and dive into Watchmen because to me, it's it's just one of the most fresh and exciting uh, TV stories. And when we had Larry Fong in here a couple of years ago, who shot the original Watchmen series for Zack Snyder, the news had just come out that they were making a Watchmen series. And my initial reaction was like, oh, my God, you know, like, why why would you go back into that? And then when I saw the show, I was like, oh, this is I mean, it is so perfectly in line with Watchmen and so different than Watchmen in so many ways. Can you talk about, and I know that you, you didn't shoot the pilot, but can you talk about how much did you reference the way that the movie looked or the comic book or like where were the visual references coming from for that show? Uh, well, first of all, like getting into the world of Watchmen is, is a whole experience. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the graphic novel is a very complex book. It's not, uh, it has so many different readings. The project, as I said before, uh, I came in with uh, Greg and Nikki having decide, uh, designed the show in a way. Even though Greg didn't shoot the pilot, he did a lot of reshoots on the pilot as well to make it fall into the, the, the guidelines that they had created. So it's, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, I, I wasn't sure that people were going to react the way they did to the project because... Mm. It's so different. It's so not Watchmen in, in the sense of a, it's not a remake of the book. It's, it's a new take on the book. It's like, yeah. it's like the continuation of the story. It's like the story happens in 1980 and this is 2019. So it, it was like just Damon Lindelof is, is a genius in the way he applied this uh, vision of a comic book into the most relevant thing nowadays. I mean, talking, talking about uh, Black Lives Matter, I mean, the show starts with the, the massacre of Tulsa 1921, which is where Trump is doing his first uh, I know. rally. It's like insane. Yes. And as a, a very basic white person, I have, uh, I'm ashamed to admit that I did not know about the Tulsa massacre until I saw it in, on Watchmen. And uh, I, much to my shame, like, I think, I think it's unfortunate that that's not taught in history, you know, classes. I know. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I didn't, I wasn't born in this country and I didn't know about it either. Yeah. I learned about it after, but you know, we're talking about the community that was thriving in 1921 yeah. where it was the wall street of, uh, of, of the African American world. And it was just completely destroyed by these white people. <laughs> it's so horrible. I know it's terrible. And I mean, that was what made it so interesting to me. And I remember I, I heard an interview with Damon Lindelof. In fact, they had a podcast. HBO made a podcast for Watchmen that was just him and Craig Mays and the guy who created Chernobyl talking about Watchmen. And, uh, and it was really interesting to kind of hear his understanding of like why he steered the Watchmen series so much into race, whereas, you know, the original Watchmen book was mostly kind of like a nuclear war threat. And he was like, well, that's what everyone was afraid of in the 1980s. And and now, uh, you know, racism is a much bigger that's that's where so much of our cultural anxiety is coming from. And I mean, it's just a kind of a genius pivot. And in fact, and I know it wasn't one of the episodes that you shot, so I don't want to ask too much about it, but like 
the realization that Hooded Justice was was actually the Louis Gossett Jr. character and, and the, the noose around his neck was actually because he, they had attempted to lynch him. I mean, like some of that stuff, it, it, as someone who read the comic book back when I was a teenager and was a fan of the movie, it was like, oh my God, you know, like the world's collided in my head. It was one of the best experiences I've had watching a TV show. So I, I feel like also there there's a lot of sensitivity in the show around just even the uses of color. Like if you had a refrigerator open and the light was too blue, audiences are going to be like oh dr manhattan's in the refrigerator so like like what were some of the i don't want to say constraints but i guess they were constraints some of the lanes in which like the creativity had to be guided in watchmen to kind of keep it on on message for what it was trying to do you know greg created this lot this uh lookup table for Mm -hmm. image that was uh very rich a very with deep dark blacks and it was beautiful so there was a guidelines, a guidance to to follow. I wouldn't say it was like restraining. I think it was just like uh, as an in, pro- in any project, when you have your guidelines, uh, you embrace them and you yeah. exploit them. You know, we knew you know extreme angles were gonna be always welcome, and uh, we had like all these shots to to like uh, dress the scene. You no, know? we had uh, always looking for interesting angles, shooting through things, uh, having like. Uh, volume and separation and so we were always looking for the right angle and the right approach that was all part of the guidelines of what we were trying to get uh all based on a comic book language in a way you yeah. know like foregrounds and backgrounds and it was it was all embracing that style that we created uh in terms of lighting for example i mean i had my first episode where laurie blake opens the <laughs> the back and, and we see the dildo yeah the dr manhattan <laughs> the dildo, dr. Manhattan dildo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was scripted uh, that this blue glow came out. So I had to like, you know, get something in there to, to make it happen. Sometimes maybe I took it a little too literal, but, but it actually worked in, in those two moments, that moment and, and also at the very end on episode seven when Angela Barr like hits. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Simply the most shocking moment of the whole series, in my opinion. When she pulls out the ring out of his forehead. Yeah. And we have also that glow. So those are our, our Manhattan references that, the only two, I think, uh, in the whole series That's before funny. he appears. I watched every episode looking for anything glowing blue or anything with a happy face on it. Like I was, I was always looking for like subtle Easter egg level stuff to imply that specifically Doctor Manhattan, because we all knew Doctor Manhattan was going to figure into the storyline. That that moment. I mean, can you talk about the scene construction, like how you built? Uh, visually to that moment of of her killing her own husband or apparently killing him, but really just, well, in a sense, she is killing him because she's killing the persona. Yeah, he's killing taken. the old person. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was all about, you know, talking to the director about how we staged the scene and we planned it even before we got there, how she would come around in the kitchen looking for something and come around to her. She's looking for <laughs> a hammer in that case. She knows what she has to do at that point. Mm-hmm. She has to like, you know, wake, wake him up. And so when he comes over, so it was like, we didn't want to know what was going to happen until it really happened. So we just kind of like presented a few of the elements, bring them together, bring them together. And then suddenly it's like, bam, that on, right on the forehead. So shocking. I mean, it was seriously, I, I rewound it and I'm like, what did I miss? I didn't miss anything. Oh my God. I'm just, this is shocking. <laughs> and then that's the end of the episode where the only thing you see is this blue glow on her face and the, and the shot of the, the ring that she pulls out of the of his forehead, uh, you know, just, uh, and that's the first time you really, really know that Doctor Manhattan is 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 gonna come out. 
Cool. Well, I feel like we're past our time here. Before we go, is there any place that people can find your work online? I, I know you have an amazing Instagram feed that I was looking at, but uh, where, where can people interact with you online if they want to see your work? Uh, well, I have my website, which is the same as uh, Instagram, xbexdp. My work is there. On my Instagram, I don't know if you saw, I did a bunch of um, quarantine portraits. I did see those. Those I did one a day for like 40 days until I ran out of inspiration. <laughs> but the idea is to make a book with them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that'll be my next project, my book. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Your work is amazing and it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much, guys. All right. So that was Javier Grobet. Thank you so much for coming on, Javier. We really appreciated having you on. Uh, thanks, Javier. That was wonderful. Guess what, Ben? Is it time to roller skate? <laughs> it's always time to roller skate, I mean, but it's also time it? to pay the bills. All right. I love paying bills. All right. Hey, I want to talk about an oddity. I want to talk about Aperture. Aperture, our fine sponsor of the show. They make uh, really high quality lights. Uh, but here's the oddity. They had a really cool set of lights called the LS Mini 20. And it's very quietly been discontinued. Discontinued in a way in that, like, you can't get it anywhere, mm-hmm. but they haven't, like, officially discontinued it. And like magic, I, I talked to Aperture recently and they sent one of the very last three light mini 20 kits what? so people out there I, yeah so so here's the thing uh these lights are really small they can run on batteries you in fact you don't even need like a, an official like yoke or anything like them they're so lightweight uh you can use them on a little sort of like camera ball head not even like a big ball head but this little tiny ball head and they have barn doors and they're not super powerful but uh they're either daylight or they're bicolor and because they're so lightweight you can kind of rig them anywhere and not really need to worry about them so you might see them on other websites where it says ls mini 20 like flight kit or something like that and uh it says available in seven to ten days that is probably not true i had aperture comb through warehouses to find this to basically put all this stuff together for hot rod and so i have one of the very last kits of uh the mini 20s and so if there's someone out there who never picked one up and really wanted to get one was just kind of waiting for it guess what uh you're not gonna be able to get them anymore we got one of the very last kits they're not doing a price reduction it's just sort of like quietly being phased out but the wonderful thing about lights is they don't actually ever really go out of style even if they come out with new stuff a light is incredibly capable and that's kind of the reason why like really i can i still use my incandescent redhead kits that i bought on ebay in 2002 you totally can it'll use a lot of power and the the lights will get hot but the truth of the matter is is that like old mole richardson and old airy sort of fennel lights still get used every day because they work just fine i mean it's like these things it did not stop being useful just because new stuff came out well the ls is anybody is anybody trying to figure out how to led up those old lights like you know an inky or a pepper light or something like that there's a couple of companies out there who who do that and they had moderate success but the cost of it didn't i think necessarily make economic sense for a lot of people I mean, so that when you think about how many people just have one of those airy mix kits those gray roller kits that have the airy that have the airy fresnels in it like everybody i know has one of those kits and they're good kits but they run a little hot they run hot they're really big they're really heavy and if you drop a light you can break the bulb the, the yeah. thing is is that yes that's a good kit and yes there's still utility in those kits but if you're going to invest money today for maybe half the price you can get stuff that is just as useful and is super light and super small and you don't need that size case anymore so no i'm just saying uh, i think that there's a useful uh, business model in uh, rehabbing those old lights and, and creating like an led uh 
something or other that could that could go into old incandescent lights you you would think but it it didn't seem to really take off even though there were companies that did it so that's uh, interesting yeah and now short ends so ben it is uh short end time uh of the show do, do you have a short end for us this week what's your pet obsession no i, no, no. I decided not to, i oh, decided not okay to then, then the moving on I guess i'm I'll lying go. i'm oh lying, I'm lying. you filthy liar so i i actually told you about this off mic uh last week but i started uh goofing off with this product called miro that is uh an online whiteboard and the reason is pretty obvious bob DeRosa and i write projects together we're currently writing a horror audio drama for a very well-known audio production company that i can't really say yet and the way we do this stuff is it's you know usually index cards on a cork board and you write down scene ideas and eventually you swap them out for better versions of that and or you know move them around and blah 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 and because of covid19 uh, we stopped meeting in person and we started working on zoom which is cool. Uh, and the project we were working on, we had already kind of written a full, we were in the middle of writing a full draft of the script. So we didn't need the, uh, the cork board at that time. We didn't need to go back to the board on it, but we're developing a new project right now. And so I was like, where can I find a good online whiteboard? And I looked around for a bunch of them and Miro, I, I'm not wild about the price. It's, but it's not outrageously expensive, but it's like $8 a month. So if you only needed it for a month, it's not a big deal, um, but it's $8 a month per seat. So that means that if Bob and I are using it, it's going to be $16, but there, we've been using the free version. The free version, you can have up to three whiteboards on there. And what's cool is they use post-its, quote unquote post-its, but you can write your scene ideas. You can move them around. You can annotate them. You can write notes off to the side and it's pretty sweet. Like I'm actually having a pretty good time with it. And I took another idea for a feature that I I've been kicking around for some time that just won't get out of my head. And the other day I threw it up there and it, I feel like it's a pretty good way to break this out. I, I still do have a cork board with index cards and thumbtacks through all of it. It's not because of the charming, charmingly analogness of doing it that way. That, that has nothing to do with it. Uh, to me, it's more about the economy of it, of like being like, I can't just have an infinite number of cards and an infinite, you know, go on and on and on. But that's also an easy discipline to apply to a virtual tool like this. The good news is you can just, you know, like the ability to annotate. So if you write, you know, a scene that's like uh, Ben and Ilya do their host rap, then you can off to the side make notes about what they're talking about. That would be a terrible scene in a movie, by the way. But um, <laughs> Boring. But, uh, I mean, unless one of us was a werewolf, if one of us was a werewolf, that could be really edge of your seat material. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, again, I'm not wild about the price and I've looked around at some other ones. You had recommended a different one and I looked at it and actually the price was about the same, hmm. but I do see like when I direct something, I like to work from with overheads. That's how I've always done it. Like I'll make an overhead of the scene and, and put the camera positions and the actor positions as much as I can know before we get to the set. And unless it's a giant VFX clusterfuck with lots of, you know, where we have to be really super precise about all the framings, the overheads to me cover it pretty well. And uh, I feel like this is a good way to do the same thing for a script. I, you know, I can, I can outline it. I can kind of see the, uh, the shape of the script and I can immediately like this, the idea that I threw up on there the other day, which I, I had done as post-it notes on a wall and then took the post-it notes down. So I just transcribed all the post-it notes and put them into this program. And almost immediately I was like, oh, I have an okay idea for a first act, a good idea for the third act. The first half of the second act is a little sketchy and I have no second half of the second act. And that became immediately obvious upon just putting it on a board 
and kind of breaking it up like that. So uh, yeah, Marrow, check it out. I think it's good for any number of applications like this. Uh, I will totally check that out. It sounds like it sounds totally uh, useful and uh, good utility. The other software that I recommended to you, uh, I've been using for website design. So uh, it's it's maybe a little bit more specialized for that, but yours sounds like a great collaboration tool. Uh, I think that, I mean, you're, both of ours worked about the same. Hmm. And, you know, the thing is you get three free boards and you can always have three free boards. So you could probably use it, you know, generally infinitely for free as long as you didn't have three active projects on it. After you have more than three, they make anyone that's older than those three uneditable. So I don't know if that means that you can delete. And then I don't go know back what to editing. Means. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't know. I mean, you might have to pay eight bucks to get back in and edit your stuff. Gotcha. So anyway, what is your pet obsession of this week? Oh man, well, uh... oh man, <laughs> now I can't wait. It's very exciting. Yes, there's been. Uh, I, I tell you, I, the the algorithms of the interwebs know me really well somehow, and uh, I have been bombarded lately with promos and trailers for the new Bill and Ted Face the Music movie coming. Oh and, wow! And I have to say that uh, I'm a fan, big fan of Bill and Ted. Uh, not ironically, I think it's uh, I think it's it's uh, it's good entertainment. And we're you know we were talking about trash TV. This is not trash. This may be a slightly guilty pleasure, but I think. Bill and Ted is uh, fantastic. This is, of course, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves uh, that, you know, from my youth. And I want to say that the actors, the leads today have a little bit of sort of like the up documentary series thing going on They're They're generation. They're way older than the last time that they did this. <laughs> yeah, But it is so fantastic and i it's so been like 30 years since they've made one of those movies that's exactly right and it is just freaking brilliant and i love everything about the trailer i love everything about the characters i love uh that it is slightly campy and i love that it is uh it is coming back and here's the other here's the even better part uh they moved up the release date a week so hey they're not concerned about the pandemic for this it was going to be august 21st 2020 it's now going to be august 14th they moved they moved it up even sooner so, so even sooner i can get some more bill and ted's goodness are they, are they before mulan and tenet uh no i think that is still after i think they were july but i could i could be wrong and july i, I don't I don't really know. I, I, I know. Saw, I saw that uh, both of those are coming out right around the same time. I thought it was in August, but uh, could it, be it could be. I know that Wonder Woman was supposed to be August 14th and I think they got pushed. So now Bill and Ted is slotted into there. So. I'm, I'm sorry to every movie coming out in 2020, but no one's going to see you in the theater. Like you're just <laughs> it's not it's not a year for going to see movies in the theater. You know what? I, I, I will enjoy Bill and Ted at home. I will. <laughs> I, I pay-per-view all day long. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, if it, if I, it is day and date. I'm 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 totally there. I can't wait. And I know Christopher Nolan is a film purist and and wants everyone to see his movies in IMAX. And I definitely want to see his movies in IMAX. But more than that, I want to be alive. So <laughs> I'll, I'll gladly pay the premium to see something that I'm excited about. And, you know, I, I got to say, I give a lot of crap to sort of the fandom fanboy nerddom sort of uh online publications that like basically that is their core demographic that is like you know uh you know the the online publications where it's just all about like nerd 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 superhero star wars whatever it is that's like every single obsessive little detail i i'm i'm not one of those people i cannot i cannot dive into that and if you type in like movie news and you start to go through this stuff that to me is like that is not me but here I am geeking out over Bill and Ted because it's like every, I think everyone's got a little bit of geek uh, for something you know, pop culture in their closet. And and now, you know, mine. Well, both of those actors, I think, have had a really interesting career individually. 
And, you know, it's like they both kind of started out as kid actors. And then Alex Winter went off and became a director and doesn't act in very much at all. It's true. But and, he, and he's and a he, great director. He's a really great director and and uh, and does really interesting stuff. Keanu Reeves, I feel like I've never really heard sort of this guy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he was sort of like a critical whipping boy in the 90s. And I think it was because he was often miscast in stuff like mm. in Bram Stoker's Dracula or Much Ado About Nothing. He was in a lot of movies that he just felt like they were like stick a, a movie star in it. And then he would do something like Speed and you'd be like, holy crap. And then I, he I don't, did. I don't think that's fair. I mean, I, he did like my own private Idaho, and like that was a big deal. My own private Idaho. No, no. He. I. I'm not saying he was not an actor of substance. I'm saying he was miscast. Mm, okay. And you don't cast Keanu Reeves as somebody with a British accent. I'm sorry. He doesn't do it very well. There were certain. I think that he became kind of an easy punchline, and then he'd be in movies like Point Break that would have a cult following but weren't really taken seriously even though that was that movie directed by Catherine Bigelow like she's kind of a big deal um are you kidding kind but, of a big deal <laughs> so you know and even into when he did the matrix and i and i do remember like seeing the matrix and just being like wow like you know just knocked me on my ass but it was still always easy to dismiss him and i feel like within the last Five years. You cannot people, dismiss Keanu Reeves in the last five years. No, I, uh, you're I right. Feel, I feel like yeah, at some point in his career, he was the punchline to a couple of people's jokes, but he was always a big movie star. That that, that oh, undeniably a, a, a big movie star and undeniably a very talented actor in the right role. I I think that he continues to get better, and I think that this is agreed. I think this is one of the, the like uh, there there's several people out there who who I feel like they. Don't phone it in. They continue to work on their craft and they get better and better and better. And they I mean, get better. With you age. can't watch the John, the John Wick movies and think that this man phones anything in. No, I mean, not at the, all. Yeah. Anyway, Helen Mirren. I, I still think Helen Mirren is like uh, no, anything she does. I'll watch it. Laura Linney. Plenty of people. Jason Bateman. They get better and better and better as they go yeah, along. So certainly. So but anyway, I'm, I'm also super stoked to see Bill and Ted stoked being the operative word, I believe. Uh, I'm <laughs> Excellent. I am bummed that uh, George Carlin will not be in this one. Oh yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, those it's it's interesting characters to revisit. I'd I'd like to see maybe more people revisit their old characters. Like I I keep thinking, here's another idea. Here's another billion dollar idea to just throw out there. Somebody should do a sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High about Agreed. Spicoli. Agreed. About Spicoli as like imagine Spicoli as like. The guy who like went out to be the cool surfer guy and then and then ended up having a kid and having to get a regular job. And it's like, like, take that character and get and bring back Sean Penn to play Spicoli today. I want to see that movie. You know, you know what? Uh, I kind of feel like it might end up like Honey Boy. It might be like, you know, he's the father figure. It might be, it might be it like might be. it might be this incredible dramatic tour de force type of, you know, thing that that no one expected to come out of Spicoli. Who knows? I think it could be well, amazing. I mean, you know, Sean Penn means a very different thing today than he did in whatever 1981. He so. sure does. You know, versus <laughs> like, you know, a teenage stoner uh, Sean Penn versus, you know, a, a, you know, Academy Award, uh, you know, yeah. Sean Penn. Anyway. OK, so uh, so Ben, who do we have to thank this episode? As always, we need to thank uh, our intrepid producer, Alana Cody. Thank you, Alana. Without her, none of this crap would be going down. And holy crap, has she been keeping us busy during this pandemic? No kidding. The the whip's been cracked. It's good. It's good. It's all good. Okay. Uh, Let's Uh, thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who has probably had to work extra overtime on this episode to make you and I not sound really stupid. I don't think he had to work this that hard this episode. We, we We didn't do as bad as last time. That's fair. That's that's not a high. Uh, that's not a, that's not a great <laughs> yardstick. Last time was really rough. So. 
<laughs> we went off the rail. Uh, uh, and then last, lastly, uh, and leastly. And leastly. Definitely leastly. Let's thank Kay Zalatraxi, who probably is not hearing this, but who created all of the music for our episode. And he is an amazing composer, visual effects artist, colorist, filmmaker, and director. Yeah, no kidding. We're all working for him and we don't know. Yeah, there's nothing that guy can't do. And he can build PCs. It's like, it's nuts. I, I, can I tell you the computer I'm using right now is a computer he helped me build. I, I, he needs like a custom emblem or a a brand or an engraving or something. He can just do this like, oh yeah, let's whip up a a PC for you. Here you go. All we need to say is K's pick a lane. Be really awesome. Only at one thing. (laughs) I mean like that's boring. Most of us are, are struggling to be adequate at one thing and you're excellent at too many things at once. He uh, he is the James Franco of like you know of like different mi- minus, di- minus the mi- sexual harassment. minus the sexual harassment allegations, but you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, he 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 does a lot of different things. Excellent. Well, that is it, and we will see you next week for another excellent installment of the Cinematography Podcast. You got it. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.